The radioactive Olympics are on again, according to Japan and the International Olympic Committee. And the torch run for these Olympics is again planned, as last year, to spend the first three days with people running around Fukushima Prefecture, including through Futaba, the town where the triple meltdown still radioactive Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster is located. The Japanese government, TEPCO, and the IOC insist that everything is A-OK. But then you read a statement from a former resident of Futaba, forced out of the town and her life by the nuclear disaster. And she says, Reconstruction is just a fantasy. The reconstruction being touted in conjunction with the Olympics completely diverges from reality. In an environment where contaminated water keeps flowing and contaminated debris keeps piling up, we shouldn't be doing PR just for the Olympics. We aren't recovered yet. It's just making up something newsworthy out of nothing. Well, when you hear from somebody whose life has been torn apart by the nuclear disaster, it starts to come clear that we're all being gaslit by the veneer of normalcy still being slapped on the ongoing Fukushima disaster, which is using the radioactive Olympics to do so. And that means that not only residents, evacuees, Olympic torch runners, tourists, and the media covering it, but the rest of us are all in that deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we revisit an on-the-ground report from Fukushima Prefecture on the manipulations around the Olympic torch relay, which is planned to be identical to last year's plans and routed to go through the highly radioactive, still difficult-to-return zone, that's an official label, of Fukushima Daiichi's host town, Futaba. Nuclear Hot Seat's Voices from Japan producing partner, Beverly Finlay Kaneko, provides the details along with statements by former residents of Futaba, translated from Japanese blog posts exclusively for Nuclear Hot Seat. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than has been discussed in the U.S. Capitol building since last Wednesday, for good reason. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 12, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off with an international notice for all of us to mark our calendars at the equivalent of 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, January 27. 
That's when the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists will announce the 2021 time of the Doomsday Clock. The news conference will take place virtually via Zoom and will feature, among others, Governor Jerry Brown, who is Executive Chair, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, as well as the former governor of the state of California. The governor of Hiroshima Prefecture, Hidehiko Yuzaki, and many others. How close are we to the possibility of nuclear annihilation? You can check it out at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists website, which is thebulletin.org. And we will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 499. Here in the U.S., the waste isolation pilot plant in New Mexico is moving forward with the use of a fan that could release radioactivity into the environment. Management there has announced that they intend to perform a hot test in coming weeks in order to test the fan, which could release radioactive contamination. It's an exhaust fan that would be used to draw air from the underground to increase the availability of clean air for workers beneath the surface. Radiation that contaminated the underground was accidentally released in 2014 after a storage drum ruptured, leading to a three-year shutdown of WIP's primary operations, which is to store low-level and mid-level transuranic waste. While WIP officials report only quote-unquote trace amounts of particles that could emit radiation would be released, that ignores the fact that there is no safe level of radiation and that does not differentiate between external contamination and internal when you breathe it, swallow it, or it gets inside a cut. Don Hancock, Nuclear Waste Program Director for the Southwest Research and Information Center, an Albuquerque-based government watchdog group, said he was concerned that there could be more radiation still in the underground and its ventilation system than estimated. He said testing the fan could prove dangerous in exposing workers on the surface to radioactivity and that readings from a four-hour test would be inadequate to determine the amount of radiation released during years of the fan's operation. In California, Unit 2 of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant went offline for the third time in six months, and it's not expected to be back in service before Memorial Day at the end of May. Both of the plant's two unplanned outages last year were due to a hydrogen leak from an electric component at Pacific Gas and Electric's facility. The latest shutdown for Unit 2 was caused by vibration issues in the main electric generator, as it is built on the coast of the rising Pacific Ocean, atop multiple earthquake faults? In the opinion of this program, they should shut it down now or just shoot it and put it out of its misery. The Ohio Supreme Court postponed the collection of $170 million in fees involving House Bill 6, a $1 billion bailout of two nuclear facilities, which became law last year and is the focus of federal bribery investigation. Under the legislation approved last year, every Ohio electricity customer must pay a monthly surcharge that amounts to about $0.85 for residents and $2,400 for large industrial plants. The charges will run through December 31, 2027, six years' worth of it. And what's to happen to this money? It would eventually be dispersed to Energy Harbor, which owns the Davis-Bessey and Perry nuclear plants along Lake Erie.
Final decision about this matter still pending. So here's an interesting nuclear twist on the inauguration. As you know from listening to this program, the president has the sole authority to conduct a nuclear strike, and wherever he or she projecting into the future goes, they are accompanied by a military aide carrying a briefcase called the President's Emergency Satchel, more commonly known as the nuclear football. The briefcase contains communications tools, codes, and options for nuclear war. During presidential inaugurations, Nuclear Command Authority and the nuclear football are transferred to the new president. But if Donald Trump says he will not participate in President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration, this could complicate the transfer. The Pentagon claims to have plans, but is not divulging what they are. You can learn more about the nuclear football by listening to Nuclear Hot Seat number 485 from October 7, 2020, an interview with Garrett Graff, who wrote the book Raven Rock. And on the website, we're going to link to two articles of interest, How Biden Can Achieve a First in Arms Control, a Verifiable Nuclear Warhead Freeze, and Why the U.S. Wastes Millions on Nuclear Weapons It Doesn't Need. Over to Japan, where about 80% of the people in that country say this year's Tokyo Olympics should be canceled or delayed as worries mount about a record surge in coronavirus cases across the country. This according to a Kyoto News poll. Last week, Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga declared a state of emergency for the greater Tokyo region and could extend that measure to other areas as Japan struggles to contain a surge in infections. Note that all of this conversation about canceling the Olympics mentions absolutely nothing about Fukushima, radiation, and the dangers not only of being exposed to it, but of the games being used as a leveraging tool to force evacuees back into the area. Speaking of which, 65% of the people who evacuated from Fukushima Prefecture after the March 11, 2011 nuclear disaster began have no intention of returning, according to a recent survey conducted by a Japanese university. In response to a multiple-choice question asking why they have not returned to their homes, 46.1% said they still fear contamination of the environment, followed by 44.8% who said they have settled down in places they currently live. But hey, maybe they can be enticed back because... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. The Japanese government is so desperate to have people move back into Fukushima to continue their cover-up of the dangers of radiation following the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, that they will pay you to move back. No, really. Japanese government grants of up to 2 million yen will be provided next fiscal year to people who move to one of 12 municipalities surrounding the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster site. Now, before you get all excited at that sound of $2 million, know that that translates into U.S. dollars, 19200 and that's over a period of five years. So it comes out to only $1,500 a year, and over five years, it breaks down to $321 a month. Is that what your life and your genetic future is worth? 
The 12 municipalities, all in Fukushima Prefecture, are Futaba, Okuma, Tomioka, Namie, Itate, Kawamata, Minimasoma, Katsurao, Naraha, Kawauchi, Tamura, and Hirono. The 2 million yen grants will be offered, likely next summer or later, to families that did not live in the 12 municipalities at the time of the 2011 accident. For a single-person household who is a newcomer to the prefecture, the grant will be 1.2 million yen. And somebody from Fukushima Prefecture who scoots on back, it's 800,000 yen, or $7,685, which breaks down to $125 a month. And they would have to live there for five years. Well, I don't know about you, but there isn't enough money in the world to get me to move back to that kind of contaminated environment. And that's the exact same problem you heard about in the previous story, where 65% of evacuees from Fukushima took a look at what was going on there and went, nah, don't think I'm coming back. But still, anybody connected with nuclear thinks money is more important than any other consideration. And what do you mean we can't bribe you and trick you into coming back here? And that's why government of Japan, whoever is behind this scheme to bribe people back into Fukushima Prefecture, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And speaking of bribes, uh, subsidies, Japanese local government's dependence on nuclear plant money distributed by the national government was starkly highlighted recently when the town government of Onagawa in Miyagi Prefecture in northeastern Japan gave Tohoku Electric Power Company permission to restart the number two reactor at the utility's Onagawa nuclear power plant. Local governments can still get money even when the power plant in their jurisdiction has been offline for long periods. And a local municipal government official said, we are being greatly helped in terms of finance. Yes, but at what ultimate cost? And in the UK, the campaign against Sizewell C nuclear power station in Suffolk has been gathering pace. The coast of East Suffolk is one of the most rapidly eroding sites in Western Europe, and it is difficult to predict what will happen to it as climate change accelerates and sea levels rise. According to the UK's environmental agency, Sizewell will become an island within a century, and it already sports two nuclear plants. Sizewell A, an old half-decommissioned Magnavox station dating back to 1966, and Sizewell B, which came online in 1995 and is scheduled to operate until 2035, accidents and failures permitting. But the site is already too small even for the two reactors that are there. The only access is via a road system that was built to carry summer tourist traffic rather than the 1,000-plus heavy goods vehicles, HGVs, a day predicted to be required for building the massive twin reactor project. A campaign group, together against Sizewell C, was established in 2008 by a group of residents, nuclear opponents, and people from all walks of life in the area whose quality of life livelihoods, and homes were threatened by further development of the Sizewell site. Before any building can commence, a year-long planning inquiry must be carried out first, 
at which the case against Sizewell C will be played out by this group and other interested parties. They're requesting signatures on a petition, and we will link to it under this episode, number 499. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, 2021. What a year, what a year, and it's only two weeks old. At least we can be hopeful that this year will be better than last, because if it's not, well, let's not go there. Whatever happens this year in government, nuclear problems are going to continue to be with us forever. The entire nuclear fuel chain is being supported by a nuclear fuel chain. Those foolish individuals in government and business who don't care how they contaminate the world, as long as they make enough money, money, money to buy $4.1 million cars. That would be the son of the head of Holtec. Meanwhile, we all have to deal with the dangers of radioactive contamination from uranium mining, manufacture of fuel rods and plutonium pits, transport, reactor operations, the forever nature of radioactive waste with no way to safely store it, the environmental racism that comes along with this, plus the overriding planetary life-ending threat of nuclear weapons. Quite frankly, the entire field of nuclear is a mess. And that is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. While mainstream media has other agendas, we know where to look for the nuclear story and the questions to ask so we can report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth every week that the industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand. And that's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just put this on pause for a moment and go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And that same red button is where you can now set up a monthly $5 donation. Same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So please, do what you can now. And know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. On last week's Nuclear Hot Seat, number 498, we heard from Dr. Alex Rosen of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War about plans for the 2021 Radioactive Olympics in Japan, which are identical to the plans for the 2020 Olympics. In fact, they're even still calling them the 2020 Games because, hey, if you spend that much money printing up merch, you gotta figure out some way to cut your losses. In any event, with so much being the same, we are revisiting our interview with Beverly Finlay Kaneko from Nuclear Hot Seat number 450, last January 2020. Beverly is Nuclear Hot Seat's Voices from Japan producing partner, and she evacuated Japan with her son following the 2011 nuclear disaster. Here she provides details from on-the-ground reports out of Fukushima Prefecture, along with direct statements by former residents of Futaba, translated from Japanese blog posts exclusively for Nuclear Hot Seat. We spoke with Beverly Finlay Kaneko on January 20th, 2020, which was before the COVID-19 pandemic forced cancellation of last year's Radio Olympics plans. Beverly Finlay Kaneko, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and get your direct reports about what's happening on the ground in Japan and especially in Fukushima. Thank you, Libby. It's always great to be on Nuclear Hot Seat and be able to share this information with your listeners. Let's go to the basics. It's the Tokyo Olympics. Why is the Olympic torch relay even taking a detour to Fukushima? 
actually the Olympic torch will travel to all 47 prefectures in Japan over the next few months. And there are going to be PR events all, all along the course to whip up excitement for the Olympics. It's starting in Fukushima because the government has decided to coin these Olympics the Fukogorin, or the official English translation is Reconstruction Olympics, to signal to the world that Japan has recovered from the triple disaster of March 11, 2011. Which, of course, is not the truth. Well, of course not, but the main driver behind this is that Prime Minister Abe wants to be the Prime Minister when the Olympics happen, and he has been quoted as saying that he wants to be able to say that Japan has recovered. Unfortunately, he just can't just wish upon a star and make it better, so he's doing his best con job that he can to make it seem that way. Where is the torch relay going in Fukushima? It's going to be in the prefecture for three days. It's first traveling to the still contaminated and struggling coastal towns of Hamadori, uh, March 26th through the 28th. And then it'll visit uh, towns in the middle and western parts of the prefecture after that. And in each area, it's going to visit various towns. And each day of the time there in Fukushima and throughout the rest, rest of Japan, it's going to end up in a town that'll have a special event going on. Recently, it was announced that Futaba, the town where Fukushima Daiichi is located, has been added to and is going to be part of this torch relay. But isn't that area still too contaminated for runners to be passing through? First of all, I want to make it clear that Futaba hasn't been officially approved to be on the torch relay. The news was that Fukushima Governor Uchibori announced that the prefecture would like to include Futaba. The Olympic Committee is expected to weigh in on it next month, but it'll probably be included. So, yes, to your question, for the most part, Futaba and many other areas in Fukushima should be off limits for runners, tourists, spectators, and returning residents, and people who have stayed there all along, quite frankly. But the torch relay is projected to travel very short distances on a very carefully curated route. And really, that's where the problem lies, according to evacuees who are being affected by the rush to open up areas that should remain closed. Area-wise, only 4% of Futaba is going to be reopened on March 4th. So 96% of that town is still going to be closed. There's a one square mile corner just north of Fukushima Daiichi that's right next to an interim contaminated waste site that's going to have evacuation orders lifted. And then there's a two-square-mile area around Futaba Station that will have limits on entry relaxed. Not really lifted, but they're going to be relaxed. Those areas won't be ready for people to move back in for a whole other two years. But all the barricades are coming down anyway. People are not going to be allowed to stay the night in that area, but anyone, including children, will be allowed to visit children, pregnant women, anyone who might be more susceptible to the radiation. 
Yes. And just people who are really ignorant about what's going on. And I, I think specifically, you know, the people who've watched dark tourism, those kinds of people that are going for an adventure. I have a feeling there's going to be some trouble with that kind of thing. What is the requirement for an area to have evacuation orders lifted? There are several requirements, and Mainichi Shimbun reporter Kosuke Hino, who's been covering the unfair treatment of evacuees really since the accident happened, he described a public meeting about reopening these areas in Futaba. At the meeting, former mayor of Futaba, who was the mayor at the time of the accident, Mayor Itogawa, pointed out several requirements that were supposed to be followed that are being glossed over. The number one requirement is that the radiation dose has to be less than 20 millisieverts per year. To give us a sense of what that means, give us the equivalency for Chernobyl with the evacuation zone and what the levels are there that are allowed. It's my understanding that the exclusion zone in Chernobyl was five millisieverts per year. So if you go to presentations or you hear people speak about giving reasons why this 20 millisieverts per year is really unfair, often in Japan, that particular number is cited. So Chernobyl's upper limit for allowing people into the exclusion zone is five millisieverts per year. But in Japan, it's four times that, meaning 20 millisieverts per year. Wasn't there an original number that was allowed for radiation exposure that was much lower than that in Japan? Well, sure. The standard for the rest of Japan and the original standard was one millisievert per year. Now it's 20 times, and that's only for Fukushima. In 2017, on Nuclear Hot Seat Voices from Japan, we spoke with attorney Yuki Saito, who's working with citizens in Minami Soma, who are actually suing, pursuing a lawsuit protesting this elevated and unfair standard as discrimination. What are some of the other requirements that are supposed to be followed but have been glossed over in this reopening in Fukushima? Okay, so the second requirement is that infrastructure and services need to be ready for people to live in that area. And this is just absolutely not true for Futaba. Just no no way, no how. They don't even have the little convenience stores and things that some of the other areas got. It's not ready for people. The third thing is the understanding of citizens, which should be gained through quote-unquote adequate discussion in public meetings. It's interesting because adequate, word adequate, was deleted from later versions of the stipulations. Um, The meetings that they have, the public meetings, are a lot like the San Onofre, uh, what I call the community enragement panel. It's actually the community engagement panel meetings on decommissioning that we have here in Southern California. It's more of a chance for the powers that be to tell the public whatever they want to, and there's really very little chance for meaningful public comment. For example, at this particular meeting, Mayor Itogawa detailed two further requirements for lifting evacuation orders that were stipulated by Fukushima Prefecture before the accident ever happened, and that would be, number one, 
the accident site has been stabilized, which is not true in the case of Fukushima Daiichi. I know they talk about shoring up areas of the plant and having boric acid on site and blah, blah, blah. But if there were to be another big earthquake or if there was some kind of accident that happened during the Olympics, you know, radiation is going to be released, whether they can try to stop that or not. It's still going to be a problem. And the second thing would be that radiation is no longer being released into the environment. And it's really common knowledge that the contaminated water, for one, is every single day flowing out of the plant. The silly ice wall that never worked. When the wind blows, there's dust being kicked up from decontamination and so forth. So radiation is still around the environment. At the meeting, after Itogawa-san pointed these things out, he asked when radiation still continues to flow into the environment, he got no answer to his question because the bell rang that signaled that the meeting time was up. So that's how they treat a former mayor who was mayor at the time of the accident and evacuated to a different prefecture with hundreds of his citizens. He doesn't even get an answer to these questions. That's the way the nuclear industry, the nuclear establishment, always tricks out any kind of meetings with the public to damp down what public people have to say and make certain that what has prominence is the position of the industry. Let's backtrack a bit. Didn't you just say that Futaba wouldn't be ready for residents for two years or until 2022 at the earliest? Yes, that's right. Why are they reopening it now? That was the very question that was asked at the public meeting. And again, there was no answer. They just wouldn't admit that it was for the Olympics. In your estimation, what is the purpose of the torch relay coming to and through Fukushima? Personally, I think it's all about PR and trying to polish something that's impossible to polish. But let's talk about Governor Uchibori, the governor of Fukushima. Frankly, he has trouble articulating what it's all about. At a press conference in December last year, he spouted some nonsense about showcasing the light and the shadows of recovery in Fukushima. And when he was asked, Just what he meant by that, he said that light means the reduction in exclusion zones and an increase in foreign tourists. So that's positive to him. By shadows, he meant that the former exclusion zones have only attracted 10% of the people to return. And actually, we learned that in places closer to Fukushima Daiichi, like Namie, where Yuji and I visited in September last year, the number is like only 5%. And most of the people that have returned are senior citizens. So I suppose in central and western parts of the prefecture that were less contaminated, they also want to showcase local culture. They want to foster tourism. They want to polish the Fukushima brand, which really has been damaged by the whole accident, you know, even areas where it's pretty safe to travel, I think. Um, I don't really have a problem with that. Just so that they're honest about the really serious problems 
faced by the hardest hit areas along the coast. In Nuclear Hot Seat episodes 438 and 439 last November, you described some of the towns that you visited in the former exclusion zone, such as Tomioka, Namie. You painted a pretty bleak picture of them. Yes. My overall impression was that reconstruction wasn't focused on restoring lives of former residents as much as it was about building big new projects and fostering new industrial growth. For example, in Kawauchi Village, there were new ventures such as a wetsuit factory with workers that they've had to import from Thailand because there aren't enough people that live there to staff the wetsuit factory. The towns we visited were populated mostly with men in grubby work clothes. They looked like they were involved in decontamination work or construction projects. And many, if not most, of the vehicles on the roads and in parking lots were trucks. I saw very few women, and I only saw one child in that area. That's probably a good thing. Yes. Do you know what the torch relay will showcase in those towns? Yes, I do, for the most part. You know, you can go online and they they sort of show you what the courses are. In Tomioka, it's going to start at the train station that's going to be reopening in March. And in Namie, it's going to take in a robot testing field and a hydrogen energy research facility. All of these things are brand new, by the way. In Itatemura, the relay will start at the new commu- brand new community center, and it will end at a brand new fancy park, and end at a brand new fancy parking rest area. To be sure, the black bags full of decontamination debris that we see all the time in pictures online, and protest signs that we saw on our trip, will not be along the carefully scoured route. Radiation levels will also appear to be low along the route. But we've been looking at a blog by a guy named Hiroki Suzuki. It's called Taminokoi Shimbun, Citizen's Voice newspaper. And he wrote a very interesting post about walking along the route in Itatemura. He took his radiation monitor and he found elevated levels on the sides of the roads and side streets along the way in comparison to the official monitoring posts along the course. He also said that he saw no decontamination debris bags visible along the course. Um, And just before we talked, I got some new information from the Yomiuri newspaper from January 21st. And Fukushima Prefecture's very own measurements along that route found a 0.5 0.25 microsieverts per hour and 0.77 microsieverts per hour at one meter along the side of the road. The prefecture has announced that it will discount those measurements because the runners will only be briefly passing by that area. <laughs> They'll only have a chance to get a little bit pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Uh, just to tell you that their standard is 0.5. So 0.23 is microsieverts per hour is supposedly the safe level uh, by prefecture standards. So this route along Itatemura 
is by its own standards is not safe. So when is the standard not the standard when it's inconvenient? Right. How do the evacuees feel about the torch relay? Well, for this episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, I was able to translate opinions of Fukushima residents and evacuees about the torch relay that Hiroki Suzuki uh, reported in his blog, Taminokoi Shimbun, that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, as I was translating, I kept coming across a phrase in Japanese that was new to me, and that phrase is hakomono. Literally, it means box things. And I kept thinking, are they building box factories? I don't understand. Are they going to be manufacturing cardboard boxes? Is that the industry? But actually, what box things is rather buildings and construction projects. So the residents were talking about the government building construction projects and buildings rather than actually doing things to help restore the lives of the people that live there or that the people that are intended to go back there. Indeed, Mainichi Shimbun reporter Hino, who we talked about earlier, he quoted present mayor Izawa of Futaba. That's a little confusing. The mayor now is Izawa. The former mayor is Idogawa. So the present mayor Izawa was boasting about trying to attract industry to Futaba. He says there are 16 companies lined up to invest. There are plans for an industrial relations center and a big museum dedicated to the triple disaster of March 11th, 2011. At this point, it appears that most farmers are probably not going to come back to Futaba. So there have been talks with a big agricultural company up in Sendai to take up a farming project on the land. Let's hear some of those translations from that blog of what some of the citizens that Suzuki talked with had to say. First, Yuji Onuma, 43 years old, originally from Futaba, presently evacuated to Ibaraki Prefecture. When he was in sixth grade, Onuma's PR phrase, nuclear power, energy for a bright future, was chosen for a sign at the entrance of Futaba Village. The sign was finally removed in December of 2015. What did Onuma have to say in this blog post. I think the torch relay involved nothing more than reconstruction PR and signaling the end of the nuclear disaster by cleaning up a small area of town and lifting the evacuation order. I'm concerned that the torch relay will be greeted skeptically as a one-time performance and Japan will lose the trust of people around the world. Once the evacuation order is lifted, I myself am going to be considered a quote-unquote voluntary evacuee. Reconstruction is just a fantasy. The reconstruction being touted in conjunction with the Olympics completely diverges from reality. In a town with no residents, the train station has been impressively restored, and soon the whole Joban train line will be reopened. Yet every time I go for a short visit, I see the interim waste storage areas expanding along the coast on the east side of town. Even if the torch relay passes through town, people in Futaba won't feel in their hearts that this means actual recovery. There are still so many streets that remain exactly as they were when the accident happened. 
radiation has gone down, but other than that, there is nothing to base the idea of recovery or reconstruction on. Even if it appears that the town has recovered, the lives and the futures of people who would have been living in Futaba if there hadn't been an accident are in a complete mess. I think the recovery of the heart will be difficult forever. In an environment where contaminated water keeps flowing and contaminated debris keeps piling up, we shouldn't be doing PR just for the Olympics. We aren't recovered yet. It's going to take a long time, but we are still trying hard. I think that in itself is good enough. My hometown has become a nuclear waste dump. The nuclear power PR sign that was the symbol of the town before the accident is now rotting somewhere that is not visible from Route 6, the main road through this area. We are being told that our town no longer has any use for the past, the era when our forebears believed in nuclear power and lived alongside the nuclear power plant. In addition to removing the sign, horrible scenery of mounds of bags filled with decontamination waste desecrate the graves where our ancestors sleep. Can you really call this recovery? Quite eloquently put. Now, here are the comments of a 70-year-old woman who is now living in the Nakadori, or central part of Fukushima, who was born and raised in Futaba. Whether the torch relay goes through Futaba or not, and whether baseball and softball are held in Fukushima or not, it has nothing to do with us. Nothing is going to change because the torch relay passed through town. While it might be good for the town to be seen again by people across Japan and the world, I think being made a symbol of recovery misses the mark. In the end, it's just making up something newsworthy out of nothing. If you ask whether the lives of the evacuees have been restored to their original condition, well, they absolutely haven't. And this from a woman whose ancestral home is in Futaba and who talked about the storehouse roof being damaged in a recent typhoon. In December, I went to my ancestral home to clean up a bit. Precious family history had been ruined with mud and radioactive contamination. Our storehouse had been damaged in the earthquake, and the typhoon finished it off. A truck came and carried everything away to the interim storage site for contaminated waste. That wasn't trash. It was my family's history. I want people to understand how sad that makes me feel. The torch relay won't get that message out to anyone. Even if we return, there is no one there. That fact is being ignored while everyone makes a big deal about the Olympics. The more the Olympics is fussed over, actual recovery in terms of local revitalization fails to progress at all. I wish someone could understand these feelings. The catchphrase, Reconstruction Olympics, does not reflect reality at all. In the shadow of the torch relay, our family homes are silently being cleaned up. In the shadow of the spectacular torch relay, I want to say in a loud voice that the hearts of the evacuees are far from recovery. There were also some comments that were gleaned for this blog from a rice cake pounding event that was held on January 5th at a reconstruction housing development in Nihon Matsu. 
A 60-year-old woman from Namie, where the torch relay will pass a new robot testing field. Always a good idea because robots go to Fukushima Daiichi to get burned out and die. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, the torch relay will pass a new robot testing field and a hydrogen energy research facility. What did she have to say? She said, the torch relay is strange, isn't it? Is there some way we can change the plans now? I could understand if they were going to run around the train station or town hall, but a something or other factory doesn't really emphasize recovery, does it? I think that's a rhetorical question. (laughs) Also at this event was a 50-year-old woman who had no idea the torch relay was going to pass by the hydrogen electric research facility and even applied to be one of the runners. The recruitment PR for the relay said, do you want to run around town? Of course. One would think that that means running in the area where the elementary school suffered catastrophic damage in the tsunami and through the town, for example. I didn't want to run as an advertisement for reconstruction. By running, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has helped me so far. I wanted to say it's because of you that I've been able to persevere. Unfortunately, I wasn't chosen for the relay team. And finally, we have a comment from Town Council Chairman, Mr. Tamora, and he had this to say. After all, the torch relay is just an advertisement for the government. And another man said, Reconstruction Olympics is meaningless. The only ones who are going to be happy about spending all that money are the big general contractors who will benefit. The man suggested that if they really want to show the truth, that the runners should travel along Route 114. But, he added, it would be a violation of human rights to force someone to run in such a highly contaminated area. So the picture that's emerging is that, quite frankly, be it hell or high water, both of which Fukushima has seen, there is going to be a run on the ground through radioactive areas. Now, there is the question of the use of the words Sometimes it's recovery. Sometimes it's reconstruction. What do either of these words have to do with what is actually going on in Fukushima Prefecture and specifically here in Futaba? Well, actually, as I went translating all of this, there was the phrase hakomono or box things, which means buildings. That was a new thing for me. And then another thing that I really got to thinking about is the Japanese word fuko which it's not something that you can directly translate into English. It sort of means reconstruction, and it also means recovery. It means rebuilding and revitalizing. And I asked Yuji, as I said, you know, I'm really having trouble translating this, and the government is saying reconstruction Olympics. And to me, that means like just rebuilding building somewhere or, you know, big pork barrel construction projects. It doesn't mean recovery. The meaning of fuko, it's not just reconstruction. It also incorporates the idea of revitalizing or recovery. And I just think it's really strange that the government chose reconstruction for the English translation because translating what all of these people who live in Futaba or who used to live in Futaba and Namie, 
it seems to me that the towns along Hamadori, the towns that we visited, Tomioka and Namie, and then also ones we didn't visit like Futaba, all they're really covering in those areas is the reconstruction part of the equation. They're not covering that revitalizing the community or recovery of the evacuees' emotional lives. And that seems to be really the missing element here overall. So it seems that the focus remains on the buildings and the physical evidence that something is happening and the image of the area, but not the truth of what happened to the human beings and continues to happen as they are unable to truly recover from anything that devastating as they keep trying to put their lives together. Exactly. Beverly, it is always instructive when you and Yuji start translating from the Japanese to let us know what's actually happening there and what people are actually saying. And we will be getting back in touch with you for Voices from Japan this year and also for anything that comes up between now and then. And thank you for being my guest and my co-producer for Voices from Japan. Always great to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much, Libby. This is really always a learning experience for me, too, and I really appreciate it. And we appreciate the chance to try and spread some of these actual voices from Japan and uh, let people know, people here know what the evacuees are thinking in their hearts. Anytime you've got anything more, we're here for you. Thank you. That was Beverly Finlay-Kaneko, the producing partner for Nuclear Hot Seat's Voices from Japan series. We will have further Voices from Japan coming up as we approach this March 11 and the 10th anniversary of the start of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear triple meltdown disaster. Activists, Activists shout out, shout out, shout out. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, is the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize winning organization that strategized, worked so hard on, and is the force behind the passage on the United Nations Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons. That treaty enters into force of law as of January 22, 2021, and yes, there is going to be an international celebration that we are all invited to join. ICANN characterizes it as a once-in-history celebration of the moment that we ban nuclear weapons. A 90-minute live stream event, January 22, 2021, live from the newly built ICANN TV studio. This celebratory event will start as of 9 p.m. in Geneva, Switzerland, which translates into 3 p.m. East Coast time, noon in Pacific time zone, and will feature special guests connecting digitally from around the world, from New Zealand to Hawaii. We will hear from artists, foreign ministers, investors, diplomats, academics, and ICANN campaigners. You can sign up for the live stream at icanw.org and of course we will link to it on our website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 499 so we can all join together and celebrate the start of peace for peace sake 
And ActionNetwork.org is asking for signatures on a petition that demands that Congress add checks and balance to our nuclear system and enact no first use. We are asking for a mandate to ensure that the United States would never launch a nuclear weapon as a first strike and start a cataclysmic chain reaction of nuclear bombs going back and forth and destroying the planet. And no single person should have the right to start a nuclear war. Checks and balances on this power must be maintained no matter who inhabits the Oval Office because we cannot afford to have the survival of human beings and life on this planet in the hands of a single individual, no matter what their political persuasion. The link will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Again, this is episode number 499. That's where you'll find it. And if you're ready to take an action on behalf of getting rid of nuclear weapons, here is my favorite anti-nuclear PSA. Susie Snyder from PAX, the Netherlands, provided a strategy for taking funding away from companies that make nuclear bombs and delivery components. Here she is with the short version of that strategy, which has implications for nuclear reactors as well. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two... Contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments, go public. Because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think. And that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons, modernization, and maintenance. And it's on our website, uh, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. Susie Snyder of don'tbankonthebomb.com. She pointed out that Blue Cross and Blue Shield are invested in nuclear weapons manufacturers. This is either a conflict of interest or a great marketing plan. Either way, time to let your banks know. This is a strategy that has been proven to work, and future generations will thank you as long as they have the opportunity to be born. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 12, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunredard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, actionnetwork.org, currentargus.com, cacurrent.com, cleveland.com, tri-cityherald.com, businessinsider.com, thebulletin.org, responsiblestatecraft.org, reuters.com, the-japan-news.com, mainichi.jp.english.com, yorkshirebylines.co.uk, 
and the ever-co-opted, regulatory-captured Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Big thanks to all of you who listen, and a shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting. Now, if you're interested in following nuclear issues, and you've heard this update today, you need to get Nuclear Hot Seat every week. So don't miss out on the single episode. You can get it delivered via email as soon as it posts by signing up for that email at NuclearHotSeat.com. Look for the big yellow opt-in box and then just put in your first name. It doesn't even have to be your real first name. Just put something in there and an email address where we can find you. And every week you will receive one email from us with the link to that week's show, plus a brief outline of some of the material that's in it. Not a week goes by without a ton of nuclear news happening in all directions around the world. And this is your one way to make certain that you get the latest. So if you haven't already done so, NuclearHotSeat.com, yellow opt-in box, put in two pieces of information, done and dusted. If you're not aware of it, this show relies a lot on those of you who are on the ground facing nuclear issues right smack dab in front of you. And we need to know about them. And that's where you come in. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And we will do our best to get in on that story and cover it to the best of our abilities. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to nuclearhotseat.com, there's a red button there. Why don't you click on it? Follow the prompts. Anything you do from there will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Haledi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you... He's still got the nuclear codes and will until January 20th. There you go. If that's not a nuclear wake-up call, I don't know what is. So whatever you do, don't go back to sleep. Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.